Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. We'll be checking in with Adam Boileau in just a moment to talk through the security news of the week and then we'll be hearing from this week's sponsor, Proofpoint. And Proofpoint's Ryan Callumber joins me this week to talk about some overlooked detection opportunities. Some simple stuff you can look for in your environment that should raise some gigantic flashing red flags. Uh, Really low effort stuff too, so uh, do stick around for that one. That one is coming up later, but first up of course it is time. For a check of the week's news headlines with Adam Boileau and a warning to you all, uh, I have the preschool plague at the moment, as you can probably hear. I've been quite sick the last four or five days, so I'm not at my sharpest, but I'll do what I can. Uh, but Adam, let's get into it. And yeah, it's a bit of a Groundhog Day uh, situation for us here at uh, Risky Biz HQ because, uh, you know, there's an exchange O'Day uh, burning stuff to the ground again. It looked initially like it might have just been some new and improved like proxy shell exploits, but uh, it turns out it's it's actually Oday. It, it's just like similar Oday to Proxy Shell, best I can tell. Yes, there's two bugs that have been uh, spotted being used. One's like a server-side request forgery that you can use uh, to kind of to get requests through the front-end web interface of uh, of Exchange. Uh, and then the other is it's sort of a variant or a related issue to uh, Proxy Shell. Uh, but net result is, you know, code exec into people's Exchange should feel very familiar uh, and... You know, obviously, Infosec Twitter's been having quite a good time about this. There's this wonderful thread where uh, Kevin Beaumont, Gossy the Dog, uh, like live tweets going through the process of patching Exchange because those of us, like, I've never been an Exchange admin and I had no idea it was that bad uh, actually managing to patch stuff. Um, so I have a lot of sympathy for Exchange and more sympathy uh, for Exchange admins than I did before. And yeah, if you are an Exchange admin, you're probably going to want to get on top of this. Uh, just, you know, all the same reasons. Uh, there aren't patches available, but Microsoft has published some mitigation advice on its blogs um, although uh, there was also a great thread about Microsoft offering advice that was not applicable like to not use legacy authentication with Exchange when that is the only option uh, so some of Microsoft's response to this has been a little bit bungly um, which not great given the importance of Exchange. Well, I can't imagine that, you know, exchange is a huge priority, like on-prem exchange is a huge priority for Microsoft, right? So I'm not surprised that uh, perhaps it's not getting the full attention and the full resources of Microsoft behind this. But geez, man, like I even saw other people tweeting that maybe some of the mitigations, like it was pretty easy to bypass them. Yes, I'd seen similar things as well. And yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, exchange on-prem is probably considered pretty legacy by all of Microsoft that wants to move forward into the very profitable cloud future. And you know, I feel bad for everybody who's, you know, running old infrastructure, running, you know, exchange from 2016 or 2013 or whatever, and having to keep this alive and well, because it's not like you can just turn it off, right? I mean, this is such important infrastructure. And we've seen how many organizations, you know, have really suffered because of these exchange bugs. Like it's, it's still very, very serious business. And, you know, Microsoft's attention, as you say, is probably elsewhere these days. This is one of those weeks where the news just all lined up in in almost a freaky way because we've got two stories to talk about now that are actually about organizations getting owned via exchange, right? And, <laughs> and, and you know, the first one, and this is this is historical activity, but it's not that old, right? So we're talking about um, uh, one campaign here that ran from November 2021 to January this year, right? So CISA has dropped a report about a defense contractor that had like multiple APTs rattling around inside of it, uh, courtesy of exchange bucks. Yes, it looked like they went to uh, investigate some intrusion that had started with Exchange, and then you have found a bunch of other people in the same environment, you know, presumably for a long period of time. Which, you know, American defense contractors probably a realistic target for uh, for quite a few people. More than one organization, I'm sure, would like to be in there. Um, but yeah, it just goes to show, like this Exchange stuff is super important. Uh, and then you know, when when you start looking. Uh, whenever you're rolling instant response, you know, chances are you're going to find somebody else, especially in a target like defense contractors. Yeah, but so, I'm curious yeah. as to why a, a defense contractor is still running on-prem exchange. I mean, it's it's hard, right? It's hard moving, you know, if you've got tens of thousands of mailboxes or hundreds of thousands of mailboxes and, you know, teams that look after it and, and all of the you know, other things that are you know, integrated with it. Like, it, it is hard to move this. These are big projects and they don't move quickly. Uh, yeah, I do understand that they don't move quickly, but 0365 has been around a little while now, Adam. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean like, it, it's, it I, I think I think we're almost at the point where we're kind of, and we've said this before, for God's sakes, we're at the point where where people are kind of running out of excuses to still run on on prem exchange. 
I mean, sadly, I agree with you. Um, my concern, of course, is that email is still such a big target, and if attackers don't have the option of owning you through on-prem exchange, they're just going to have to go after 0365. So maybe we're already in that world, and it's too late to you know have some sacrificial on-prem exchange just to keep the attackers busy <laughs> to keep them away from Microsoft. Um, that's probably wishful thinking. Now. <laughs> You know, here's the second example, right? We spoke about the Guacamaya hacks, right? This is the hacktivist group uh, targeting Latin American militaries and whatnot. Um, turns out they're rolling with exchange bugs as well. And they're the ones that got terabytes upon terabytes of uh, data from all of these uh, Central and Latin American governments and have given them to like um, uh, leak sites and whatever. So we've got some comments now. Uh, here from the uh, Mexican president talking about it. And look, this is a really good write-up from Jonathan Grieg over at The Record, which goes through like the drama that these leaks are causing in Mexico. A lot of the uh, uh, media there have sort of focused on tabloid stories about uh, revelations about the president's health that are contained in, in some of these data dumps. But there's other stuff in there too that's like legit public interest stuff. So, so I guess what I'm do getting at here is that we're talking about an exchange hack here in this case, which is having a pretty significant impact on the politics of Mexico. Yeah, well, there was actually an image in the dumps from this group, um, you know, beautifully illustrated picture of you know birds from South America, of which the guacamole is a is a bird, doing exchange hacking. You know, like illustrating how they you know scan for it. You know what exploits they use. It's quite you know it's, it was quite charming, quite a charming image. Um, but yeah, the you know very very serious business for all the organisations involved and. You know, seeing this large trove of data dumped and then basically, you know, kind of handed over to the citizenry to do journalism on, to rummage around, to find interesting things. Um, you know, we're going to be hearing stories, you know, in Mexico and the other South American countries that data came from, you know, for a while, I think. It's going to have a long tail. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, there is some stuff coming out that has sort of shown that the military is exerting a lot of control over the government and also shown that the head of the army and the navy are kind of like at war. And, you know, there, there is some interesting stuff coming out there. But anyway, my, 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 my point, again, is that all of this is possible because exchange is a giant pile <laughs> of Yes. Right and and you yes. know this is crazy that we've got these these this huge political scandal in Mexico because uh, exchange is a piece of shit. We've got CISA dropping reports into defense contractors owned by multiple APT crews because exchange is a piece of shit. And you know just exchange is a piece of shit. Yeah, and I you know in some ways I feel I feel some sense of remorse that you know I and other hackers didn't go and dig into exchange because exchange is also gross. Right, like actually working with it, setting it up, running it, having a test environment, finding these kinds of bugs was just unpleasant, and I never did it. Mm. And it makes me, in some ways, I'm sad that you know, because there was everyone had on-prem exchange five years ago, uh, ten years ago, whatever. Um, and I'm sad at all the shells I missed out <laughs> by not having these bugs ten years ago. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, and look, there's another story that I'm going to link through uh, in this week's show notes. Uh, again, from the record, this one by Alexander Martin, uh, looking at a Citizen Lab report into some journalists and whatnot being targeted by uh, implants in Mexico. But it's an interesting story because it's like, look, some of these targets were clearly of mostly of interest to the cartels, right? So... You know, this is what happens when you've got advanced tools meet uh, uh, a corrupt government and, you know, cartels operating it and stuff. So that, that's an interesting read. I mean, did anything about this one jump out for you, Adam, or just it's pretty much same old, same old at this point, it, isn't it, these reports? Yeah, it, it did seem pretty pretty same old, same old for NSO and, and also for Mexico. Um, it's always good to see Susan Lab pulling the threads and, and providing support to some people who've been targeted by the stuff. But yeah, there wasn't anything new and interesting. Other, you know, NSO response was exactly as you would expect. You know, we can't verify it, but we also don't know what our customers do. So how would you verify it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, a uh, bit of drama in the United States where a NSA employee uh, got arrested trying to meet with Russian spies uh, to to hand off some classified documents he was selling them. Uh, interesting interesting kind of a, a electronic dead drop, right? Where he had to go to this specific location to get on a, you know, Wi-Fi network or whatever that the Russians, quote unquote, were setting up for him. Now, <laughs> look, this guy, clearly not a risky business listener. I know we have a lot of listeners at NSA. This guy clearly was not one of them. His name is Jara Sebastian Dalki. And uh, the reason I say he's not a listener is because you remember that guy got done for trying to sell nuclear submarine secrets to a foreign power uh, some time ago. And we said on the show, 
if it's the foreign government that is insisting on the dead drop location, insisting on picking the dead drop location ahead of time, we guarantee you it's the FBI. Uh, <laughs> we absolutely guarantee you. And in this case, yes, turned out it wasn't the Russians. He wasn't meeting the Russians. He thought he was meeting the Russians. He was meeting the FBI. So he's been arrested and charged and uh, he's in all sorts of trouble. He'd only worked at NSA for three weeks too. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what you're thinking. I mean, maybe he got the job on purpose. Maybe, I think the story also said that he had like, he'd quit or been fired or whatever uh, and then had reapplied again once he had realised that he could perhaps sell, sell secrets to the, the fake Russians. And also, like, he wasn't asking for a lot of money. Like, it was, what, like 80, 85,000 US dollars? Like, that doesn't seem worth an espionage charge to me. I but, don't know. I mean, know. if you owe the wrong bookie 85 grand, yeah, I guess I it suppose, is worth yeah. it, right? Like, yeah, it just, yeah, I guess you're, if you're bargaining with your kneecaps, maybe. Yeah, yeah maybe. exactly, right? So 85 grand is a lot of money for someone who needs needs money and doesn't have any, right? <laughs> yeah, so I suppose. it's not like you oh. could just go and easily get 85 grand. <laughs> except by nicking classified documents and selling them to the FBI. Yeah, you do wonder how much of this stuff is undetected though, right? Because, you do, yes. You know, like it seems like the FBI are pretty good at, at actually catching some of these people, but, you know, you don't know what you don't know. No, exactly, yeah. And I, yeah, I, I, I do wonder, I mean, maybe if the you know, Russian Federation collapses and we get, you know, documents leaked out of there, you know, when from the FSB, maybe one day we'll know. Uh, but, yeah, uh, you SBR really do wonder about a bunch of stuff uh, when it comes to the future of the Russian Federation. Like you if do, it comes really to a time do. where there's a change of government and it wants to normalise relations with the West, I can imagine uh, giving Snowden back. <laughs> Although that will be a little bit more difficult now, Adam, because uh, Putin has granted Edward Snowden Russian citizenship and the Russian constitution forbids the extradition of citizens. <laughs> but um, yeah, Eddie, Eddie Snowden is now officially Russian. Officially a Russian, yeah. I mean, I guess it was going to happen eventually. I mean, it's been there a long, a long time now and it's not like he can go anywhere else. So yeah, yeah given him, I mean, Twitter was making a lot of fun about, you know, maybe he's now eligible for the draft, which I don't believe he actually is. I don't think they're going to send him to the front everyone i no. think we need to calm down but um no but yeah I maybe could, you get I, drafted into the cyber units i don't know do they use sharepoint <laughs> would the sanctions prevent them from using sharepoint not, probably, yeah probably not anymore they have, yeah. to, they have to migrate to you know some open source wiki or something yeah exactly um <laughs> now let's stay with uh you know international intrigue and odd characters uh remember this guy christopher ems we spoke about this guy this is the guy who was in north korea I think he was either running or speaking at a conference about how to like use Bitcoin to evade sanctions and whatever. And then <laughs> oddly enough, um, wound up being uh, sought for extradition by the, uh, by the United States government. He was in Saudi Arabia, um, managed to wriggle out of extradition actually. And now he's fled to Russia. So, uh, you know, I think maybe he's next in line for citizenship. Let's see. Yeah, I guess, I guess so. He can join Maybe there's some kind of like you know, expatriate club in Moscow for uh, people who are avoiding extradition there. Um, so yeah, we'll see. We'll see about whether he enjoys the life there. I do. It's just you can't read this and not think, man. This guy is, is you know case study for f around and find out, and very much finding out. Now, look, uh, I want to talk about a report from Reuters, which is fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating stuff, and this is detail that I've been waiting years for, right? So you remember some time ago we spoke about how uh, the Iranians and then subsequently the Chinese, I believe, had figured out how to uh, identify essentially uh, like covert communications websites that were used by CIA assets in those places, right? So the thinking was that the the governments there figured out how to identify these sites and then figure out who'd been communicating with them. And that resulted in, you know, people actually losing their lives, right? And we theorized at the time, Adam, that it looked like they were just, it was a clown show and it was truly amateur hour in terms of how CIA was handling uh, uh, comms for its uh, assets and agents in the field. And look, we've got new detail here, courtesy of uh, Citizen Lab and Reuters uh, subsequent reporting. And it's every bit as bad as we thought it was and possibly even a little worse. Yes, the uh, reporting identifies actually one specific instance uh, of the communication systems that the CIA were using. So it was a bunch of websites that had like a, you know, innocuous websites, news, sports, you know, kind of things uh, that, you know, people in the field would have some, you know, potentially some interest to be to be using. And these had, you know, some kind of secret, you know, communications mechanism place where you could receive messages, send ones. And... Um, 
the reporting has identified one of those, which is like a IranianGoals.com, like a soccer news site. Uh, and it looks like, you know, when they set up these sites, they're all using basically the same framework or, you know, similar tools and, and techniques. And essentially the, you know, the Iranians, subsequently the Chinese, were able to just build Google Docs uh, to figure out other instances of the same comms. And then, of course, if you're in a country where you've got great monitoring of DNS lookups or whatever else, right, you're then able to go and see who's visiting uh, you know, visiting these dead drop sites. But I mean, this, uh, is, this is exactly what we theorised it was, which is that they probably had some PHP script called spycoms.php <laughs> and that they Google docked it. And it looks like that's yeah. basically what happened. Where it gets even worse, though, is you look at their terrible OPSEC on the infrastructure side and it's just mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had um, a bunch of these sites, you know, just next to each other in the same address range operated by, you know, some kind of, you know, fake American front companies all, you know, when you see a, you know, Iranian soccer site, you know, on the same or next IP over from a, you know, I don't know what else they were using in China, what lures they had there, what fake sites they had, you know, pretty sloppy from an infrastructure point of view. uh, And, you know, regardless of, you know, how good maybe the, you know, communications or encryption or whatever else, that makes no difference when the only piece of information the adversary needs is who is using these systems, not even what they're talking about. You know, the fact that they go there this often, you know, is absolutely enough to find people, arrest people, and in some cases kill them. I mean, you do just wonder how this happened because clearly CIA would have some people smart enough to do a better job than this. So you wonder at what level this was signed off on, right? And if and if this was the best they could do, surely, like, if they had to put this in front of anyone... Uh, who's who's at all an expert in this sort of thing, they would have said that this was nuts, right? So, like, you, you just wonder how this got approved and was actually used to to handle these sort of, sort of comms. You know, you just really do wonder. You do, yes. And, you know, the cynic in me says, you know, an organisation like the CIA, you know, probably glamorises things other than cyber, you know, like the physical, yes. you know, human side of things. And organisationally, this was probably considered unimportant, boring nerd stuff. Exactly And they probably what handed I was it off yeah. to some junior analyst, some junior person, you know, who didn't get much support, was just called, told to go build, you know, fitnessdog.com or whatever. Yeah. Um, Rasta Direct, <laughs> you know, for Rasta Fair I knew. I mean, you know, maybe it, maybe it could have been a good idea to ring up NSA and say, hey, you're pretty good at internet stuff. What do you think about this? Is this a sensible idea or should we maybe change this? You know, like it's just clear that did not happen, right? And they just yeah, it, they just winged it and, it, and it it was catastrophic. Yes. I mean, we are, you know, we are talking, you know, early 2010s, right? Late 2000s, early 2010s, right? So when internet was... Yeah, but it was still it was still suicidal then. Come on, Adam. Like, yeah, I mean, you know, if you yeah. had to put this in front of anyone at NSA and said, even then, even like twelve years ago, and said, "Is this a robust, you know, secure, covert system?" They would have told you you were nuts. Yes, uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and especially in an environment where you know all internet traffic is going through gateways controlled by the national governments, and they have DNS log and they have S, you know, TLS monitoring. You know, you do wonder whether the people who built this understood enough of the threat model for their agents in the field, you know, their informants or, you know, whoever else. And you, I don't know how you would arrive at this system if you did. There, there, there are so many other ways you could have done this in a way that wouldn't have put people at this sort of risk. And it's just crazy. It's just crazy that this was signed off on and it literally got people killed. And it really undermines an organisation like CIA when, you know, a whole bunch of their, their assets and agents get brought together and executed because they did a shit job. Yeah, it does not encourage other people to come forward and, you know, and help America's causes when they can't protect them and... You know, we end up with shit like this. So, yeah, uh, yeah. It's just yeah, staggering. It's, it's just staggering incompetence, I think. And 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 it's like, you know, even at the time when we we talked about it, it's like, you know, I just I had a feeling in my bones that it was something like this, but I didn't. You know, until you see it, you don't truly believe it. You know. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. Exactly right. Same with you know Stuxnet or Aurora or you know all those things that really you know made some of the stuff more real because we could see actually how it was being done in the real world. Um, and this, you know, once again, you know, all, all the CIA stuff that we've seen, like in the in the Vault Seven leaks that came out, and this, you know, a lot of this CIA stuff does not feel super well done and super well prioritized. 
Uh, yeah, but at least the CIA, at least the Vault 7 tools worked. You know what That's I mean? True. At least they, they could they, do they what work, they yes. said on the box, right? <laughs> Whereas this is just, yeah, it's just insane. Anyway, I think we've sort of established how we feel about it. So we can yes. move on uh, <laughs> to the next uh, story. Now, some uh, Chinese language YouTube channel, a popular one with like 180,000 subscribers, uh, has been pushing a modified version of the Tor browser that uh, does not do what the Tor browser is supposed to do, Adam. <laughs> yes, uh, this channel published a video, uh, you know, kind of uh, explaining how to use Tor and, you know, what you can do with it in China. Uh, and has a link to the real Tor site for you to go and download uh, the Tor browser, which, of course, the real link doesn't work. Fortunately, you know, very helpfully, they provide a link that does work in China, which, of course, contains a, you know, a backdoored version of Tor. Uh, and they'd also broken the like auto update thing, so the Tor browser would never, you know, pull down an updated version and, and remove the backdoor or break it or whatever else. Um, I believe the Tor project have now actually like trace Buster busted this uh, this thing where they they changed the URL for the the automatic updates, so that now the Tor project is responding to the broken auto update link that they were using, so that it will actually push out updates uh, to the people who have this Trojan version. So some uh, you know some good arms race going on there. But I mean, yeah, I guess don't get your censorship circumvention tools from a video you know on YouTube and don't check the hashes. You know, maybe inside China it seems like a bad a bad plan. Uh, now, we've got an interesting one here from Wired, written by Andy Greenberg, about uh, what looks like an APT crew actually doing some interesting stuff to uh, some interesting and unnatural stuff to uh, VMware infrastructure, Adam. Yeah, so I mean, this is a, a write-up of a group that is in the wild using techniques to get code execution and other things into virtual machines. So right? to carry out, you know, whatever activity you want to do, read files, run commands, you know, initiate new stuff uh, from the hypervisor down into virtual machines. The idea being that, you know, you see the virtual machines EDR or whatever else will see the actions of the malware but not actually see the the place that it's coming from or where persistence is happening. And obviously catching persistence is, you know, one of the things that antivirus and, and EDR, you know, are looking for. Um, I don't know if this is a new... I mean, the, the concept is not new. We've seen plenty of attacks, you know, or techniques for using hypervisors to attack guest machines. I mean... You know, if you land on someone's desktop and they're running VMware workstation, like there's a command line utility provided by VMware that just runs code inside the virtual machines as part of the of the package. Like it's a normalized normal behavior that you can use, and I have used in the past. You know, to jump into virtual machines that people are using for you know access to higher zones or running VPN clients for onward access to customers or whatever else. Um, so the general technique is you know, kind of well known, but it's seeing it being used by APT crews and Mandiant in this case is like low confidence attribution to China, um, you know, used as a general like workhorse technique, like own the hypervisor, the VMware ESX, and then use that as your base of operations. Like that is probably concerning to a bunch of people, you know, just because hypervisor infrastructure is not necessarily where, you know, incident responders or monitoring tools live. Um, and, you know, it's, seems like a smart play to me. Yeah, I mean, that's always the way, isn't it, right? Like if you just focus your activity on the unmonitored parts of whatever, then, you know, you, you, you're going to get further, right? And you're going to have a longer dwell time and, I don't know, achieve, yeah. achieve great victory. And especially when, you know, a lot of infrastructure people would consider hypervisors as more appliance stuff, you know, VMware on-prem, you know, the, the hypervisors are kind of appliances that you just install and don't necessarily manage in the yeah. same way that you would your, your They're virtual, you know, actual virtual blinky light boxes. Exactly. And so, and, and obviously in the, in the cloud, right, those hypervisors are completely invisible to us. Uh, and, you know, the same things apply in that infrastructure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I just think outside of most people's, you know, uh, thinking and, you know, not surprising to hackers, but probably surprising to operational people. So what do you do to try to uh, deal with this? You know, what sort of detections do you want in place? Well, I mean, you know, step one is, you know, you can't really survive a hypervisor compromise, so you have to defend well, you know, lots of patching. Uh, there's been a lot of hypervisor bugs lately, you know, um, that you do have to apply patches for. But, yeah, monitoring in those environments is important. Um, yeah. You know, this is all post-intrusion stuff. I mean, you've got to catch it, you've got to catch it on, the, on the shells going out, right? Like, that's going to be the way. Kind of, yeah. And, I mean, especially when, you know, I mean, the inside of a hypervisor is not super obvious, you know, to people. It is just a black box for most people, so... You know, getting good quality monitoring into something that you don't, you didn't build, and you don't really have great understanding of, is difficult. Uh, so, I mean, prevention in this case probably more useful. Plus, you know, catching as you say, catching on the network uh, also a good plan. But Adam, network detection is dead. 
Didn't you know? <laughs> I don't know. Didn't you know? I'm not, I'm not sure hackers or networks got the memo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ah, now mm. another example of a ransomware operator being scummy. Uh, the Vice Society ransomware group uh, has leaked a bunch of information on uh, Los Angeles uh, schools, children. Uh, basically, including a lot of really sensitive uh, info, and this is after the you know the the Los Angeles school district or whatever refused to pay a ransom. So yeah, uh, they're they're doxing kids now, Adam. Yeah, that's that's pretty gross. Uh, this um, they dropped it, I think, ahead of the sort of schedule that they had pitched for the uh, school district to you know pay some ransom. Uh, Caesar's been in there, and the FBI been in there assisting, uh, and there's some you know vitriol from the ransomware group. Um, calling out scissor as well but yeah it's just kind of scummy and uh, this crowd i think has been um seen targeting a bunch of schools and, and school districts and education providers as well uh, according to mc soft so yeah that's pretty scummy yeah, I mean, it's this, this data profiles of children, gross. Yeah, this data may actually include the psychological evaluations of children, and um, you know, just the worst people, right? Like yeah. they are the worst uh, uh, people. Uh, we've got another story here looking at uh, wholesale access markets, which are not to be confused with initial access brokers, Adam. Um, and uh, this story traces, uh, it's another Jonathan Grieg one at the record, uh, traces 700 ransomware incidents back to these wholesale access markets. Yeah, tell, tell us about this one. Yeah, this, the story is also interesting. It has some has some numbers uh, and also kind of uh, makes a distinction between you know high value, good quality service provided by initial access brokers and this kind of like what they're calling wholesale access markets, where you know it's just like job lots of uh, access to machines with backdoors or passwords or log data or whatever else, where you know the broker hasn't done the work to try and figure out you know who it's going to give you access to, and you can just buy a you know sort of a mixed bag, you know, mixed lolly bag for 10 bucks uh, and have a rummage around and see what you get and then, you know, opportunistically go on and ransomware from there, which, you know, when people are looking at, you know, trying to find trends in how ransomware targeting works and it's like, oh, there's been an uptick in education, there's an uptick in healthcare, like this is the sad reality is a lot of it's just opportunistic, you know, someone's got a botnet, they decide to, you know, cash out, sell all the access, you know, for you know a few dollars here and there and people just take the you know have a rummage around see what they've got uh, and make what they can out of it uh, now we've got some uh, research here from recorded future looking at attacks against the semiconductor industry which is obviously a an industry that's that's uh facing a lot of interest from all different types of, of hackers because it's a, it's an absolutely critical sector. Uh, it's absolutely critical to the functioning of the of the planet. And this research seems to suggest that, yeah, there's criminal motivations behind a lot of these ransomware crews going after semiconductor uh, uh, companies, but also there might be some, you know, some governments kind of pulling at the strings a little bit behind the scenes. Yeah, that, that seems to be the main point of interest. You know, they pulled together data about targeting of semiconductor manufacturers, obviously a lot of them in Taiwan, um, and then they, I think, have five instances, at least five instances of state-sponsored groups, which we're going to assume probably China, um, masquerading as ransomware or, ha or pushing ransomware out, you know, maybe to distract, maybe because they've been snapped. Um, but, yeah, using that as a front for... Um, industrial espionage uh, and stealing intellectual property and uh, obviously as you say semiconductor manufacturing super important you know China is competing the US is going to start competing you know with having domestic manufacturing we see the trouble Russia is in you know not getting enough semiconductors to build military equipment uh, you know important place for nation states to play in and yeah not surprising women ransomware is just such a great cover for anything you want to be doing uh, and especially when you want to kick off a big response to distract you know, maybe what, you know, because you've been snapped or maybe because you have other things going on. It's just, you know, a tool that everyone, you know, is, is going to use to their advantage. Well, it's a know, great way to complicate response too, because no yes. logs, no crime. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you encrypt everything, right, like you're, you're actually vaping a lot of evidence. Yeah, and also, I mean, the in the process of response, you may end up, you know, machines are going to get replaced or reinstalled or whatever else. Like, it's yeah, it's good for deleting logs. It's good for distracting resources. It's good for you know tying up the executives, you know, dealing with a problem over here whilst they don't understand what's going on somewhere else. Like, it's it's a it's so useful. CISA has um, uh, issued a directive which is demanding U.S. federal government uh, agencies 
go and uh, quote-unquote better account uh, for what they actually have. Now, just a dis- disclaimer here, I'm an advisor to Run Zero, formerly Rumble, that's HD Moore's uh, company, which, um, you know, they build a tool that is specifically designed to do exactly what this order says. Like, that's why I wanted to talk about it because it's just it's just amazing how much it actually maps to what modern asset discovery looks like. And I think this is a good idea, right? So uh, apparently uh, CISA will consider uh, the, the directive a success when uh, all civilian agencies have an up-to-date inventory of networked uh, assets, a list of software vulnerabilities and uh, data on how often the agency tracks its assets and the ability to send all of this to uh, CISA. By April 3 next year, uh, all agencies need to perform automated asset discovery every week, right? So I, it's just really funny where they're basically like, here's a directive, run Rumble. Um, yeah, or, or run yeah, zero, exactly. as it's called yeah, now, yeah. right? But did you get did you get that as well? That, that is exactly. I, I cut and paste that by April, by next April 3rd paragraph. I cut and pasted it in the work chat and I said, great time to be run zero. Yeah. Uh, and then there was many thumbs up on my post because, it, yeah, it's just made for them. And I think, you know, this is really useful. Understanding what you have in your environment is... You know, how are you going to defend stuff? How are you going to respond to stuff if you don't know what you got? And when something like Log4j comes along, which of course is one of the motivations uh, for this kind of thing, yeah, I mean, it, if you don't understand what's in there, uh, then you know you just can't assess the risk and deal. And I think uh, Jen Eastley uh, from Scissor is quoted in the piece uh, saying, you know, knowing what's on your network is the first step for any organization to reduce risk, which 100% agree. Uh, and then she goes on to say, while this directive applies to federal civilian agencies, we urge all organizations to adopt the guidance of this directive, which, you know, that's, uh, you know, th- there's some signaling there that, you know, if the products exist and other people are being made to do it, then, you know, you can see this being extended further you know, if it's a requirement for suppliers to federal agencies and so on and so forth, like there are, the pressure has gone on for yeah. everyone to face up that this is a thing that is best practice and probably bare minimum that you have to do these days. It, it, it's a technology area that makes sense these days. And I think it is going to be something that everybody winds up using. Yeah, and I think, you know, we, we pivoted towards, you know, infrastructure as code and very dynamic infrastructure and all of our, a lot of our old ideas about how asset management would work, you know, kind of didn't have the speed and the integration to keep up with that kind of very, very dynamic, you know, software-defined infrastructure. You know, new organizations and companies that are, you know, used to getting that data out of every any place that you can get it, like Rumble, um, you know, being able to integrate all that stuff and, and to keep up with the constant pace and actually have a chance of understanding you know, where your cloud stuff is, where all of your on-prem containers and whatever else are, what they're doing, you know, that's a that's a thing that old asset management didn't deal well with. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, Krebs on Security uh, has a great report up about how someone has gone out and created a whole bunch of fake CISO profiles on <laughs> LinkedIn, which, you know, I reckon this story would have ruined someone's uh, fun because, you know, you'd have to think that LinkedIn will be removing these profiles or at least emailing Brian and saying, hey, can you give us a complete list? Um <laughs> But yeah, like it looks like someone has really been putting in a lot of work to create fake CISO profiles, which, you know, is obviously the prelude to something not good happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Like there's no reason you do this for fun because using LinkedIn is not fun. Um, but yeah, <laughs> clearly the, there's some kind of common aspects though, because I mean, even LinkedIn's own recommendations are like serving up other profiles that have been created in the same campaign. Um, so like there must be some similarity there. I think one of Brian's suggestions was that what would really help is if LinkedIn just showed you the profile creation date. That way you could tell even, you know, the CISO of Exxon signed up on, on LinkedIn last week. Maybe a little sus. Uh, yeah. Useful data point for people to look at. And finally, like a cyber adjacent story here from Zach Whitaker over at TechCrunch. Uh, the Democrats in the United States uh, have unveiled a bill that's designed to limit the use of facial recognition tech by police. Um, this one's a starting point. But basically, you know, you'd need to get some sort of warrant before you're able to use uh, facial recognition software on someone. The devil's always going to be in the details with something like this. Uh, I, I haven't had a chance to actually properly analyze this bill and what it's proposing, but, you know, it's a starting point, right? Like I haven't, I haven't had a chance to go in the detail here, but it, it is at least a starting point. And this has been an issue that's been unaddressed for so long. And it's about time legislators actually took a look at it. 
Yeah, and I think it's, you know, this is also a good step forward because we've got all sorts of emerging tech, you know, artificial intelligence stuff that, you know, we, we end up delegating to machines decisions that then have impacts about people. And, you know, there's been plenty of examples of, you know, misidentification of people, especially people of colour, by facial recognition because of the biases and the training data sets and so on and so forth. But these issues also apply to other machine learning systems. So, you know, in some respects, I'm, I'm quite glad to see something that would focus on specifically facial recognition that then we could use, you know, to sort of have a framework to think about other artificial intelligence um, things that are going to need legislation over the, you know, over the coming years. Obviously, the US process for passing laws is difficult and confusing, and I'm not quite sure, like, how likely this is, whether they're gonna, it's going to get, you know, glued onto a, you know, a bill about a bridge in Wisconsin. So who knows? But it's, you know, these are important issues, and I'm glad that it's getting attention, you know, in the legislature. Now, Adam, before we go, uh, we just wanted to actually give a plug to a video series that uh, Google has put out uh, called Hacking Hacking Google, isn't it? Yes, Hacking Google. It's a, a bunch of stories about, you know, the security team inside Google and, you know, a bunch of war stories that if you haven't been in this industry and, and you know, had a few beers with the right people over the years that maybe you haven't heard um, the story of how Google got hacked by the you know Chinese way back in the day um, and a month, you know, the, the rise of the tag group or Project Zero. Uh, yeah, it's a great set of, um, of little, you know, kind of 15, 20 minute videos. Production values are way up too. Like oh, yeah. The animation's beautiful. The production's great. And also lots of friendly faces on there. Uh, Dmitry Yarperovich, friend of the show, uh, featured in uh, the first episode along with, you know, uh, one of my ex-colleagues, Darren Bilby, uh, Heather Adkins, you know, a bunch of people that, you know, that are you know, important people around the industry, you know, getting to actually tell some stories. So, yeah, definitely well, and what's worth- funny, And what's funny is like, as you said, the, the over a beer thing, right, is that if you know people who are around for that at Google, you, can't, you very quickly come to understand why Google now runs some of the best infrastructure on the planet, right? Because, <laughs> yes, you yes. know, when Operation Aurora happened back in like, what, 2009 or whatever, like when the, when the Google's, <clears throat> excuse me, when Google's founders found out about this, uh, their response was like to open their checkbook, empower their security teams and say, we don't ever want this to happen again. And it's sadly uh, a bit of a unique response, right? Other other companies yeah, didn't necessarily yeah. follow suit, but that's why Google invested so much time, effort, and money into stuff like Beyond Corp, right? Yes, yeah, and, and they have you know really had a leadership position in how to do some of this stuff ever since that time. Mm. Um, and you know, even with Operation Aurora, you know, when they came out about that, and that was novel, right? I mean, then talking about their experience and the fact they've been you know compromised and attributing to a nation state, you know, that was really new back in, and confronting back in, yeah. in 2009, um, whereas the other organisations that were compromised in the same campaign, I don't know, I've even seen a complete list of the 20 whatever other targets, yeah. you know, even now, this many years later. Um, and that response really did set Google apart and set them on a path where they have built so much important you know, security tech, so much understanding about how to do this stuff. I mean, even to this day, Project Zero is pretty unique. Um, Google Tag is a you know a group that you know, is just super effective and has amazing visibility and does great work. So it's just it's nice to see the stories that have shaped you know and the people that have shaped you know quite a lot of really important stuff in this industry you know now out there for you know people who are newer or haven't you know don't necessarily follow it in that much detail for people to to see and, and hear some of those. Yeah, so I'll drop a link in this week's show notes and people should check it out. I, I skim-watched the first episode last night. It's only just come out and, um, yeah, as you say, a lot of friendly faces. And, you know, a story that we might have heard, you know, stories that we might have heard over beers that haven't really been told super, super, super publicly yet. So it's really yes. great to see Google kind of opening up about this yeah. and, and talking about it. And, uh, yeah, uh, definitely add that one to your to your YouTube playlists or however the kids do it. I don't know. Um, Adam <laughs> Barlow, that is actually it for the week's news. Uh, a pleasure to chat to you, my friend, and uh, we'll do it all again next week. Yeah, thanks, Pat. I will talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's security news. Big thanks to him for that. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Ryan Callumber, who is the Executive Vice President of Cybersecurity Strategy at Proofpoint. And Ryan joined me for this interview about some simple and overlooked detection strategies that you might want to consider. I'll drop you in here as he explains the first one, detecting some really easy to spot exfiltration steps. If an adversary is in the network and they're looking to get 5, 10, 20 gigabytes of data out, that's going to give you things to look for, which are 
you know, not usual parts of the detection arsenal for, for most organizations. What, exfiltration? Well, you'd think that they would <laughs> be looking for that a little more often. It was a classic SIM and UEBA rule for sure. But yeah. uh, I'm talking about installation of 7-Zip. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, there's the WinRAR story that I've told a million times on the, on the, on yeah. the show. But, you know, right. th those are pretty good indicators because crews tend to have their own favorite compression tools that they might have to bring themselves. Well, exactly. And if you're talking about that volume of data, you're probably going to see traffic to Mega. You know, <laughs> that's one of the few sites that's there that's, you know, unfortunately not blocked on most networks that can handle file types of that size and is quite fast. Mm. So we'll see adversaries at least try that before they default to whatever the file sharing standard is, like OneDrive, which is a lot slower and they don't like using if they don't have to. So yeah. what we've Well, seen, that was going to be my question, actually, which is why wouldn't they just use G Drive or Dropbox or whatever? Yeah, and, and sometimes they certainly do. And there you absolutely want to be looking for anomalous volumes of traffic and anomalous file sizes and also chopped up stuff that is part of an archive. You know, all of the regular things, which... You know, people have DLP programs that have mostly been built for compliance purposes, but your DLP tools should all be trying to detect this. And if you've got any kind of insider uh, instrumentation, it should also be able to look for the same stuff because the patterns are really, really repeatable. And, you know, we're not looking for steganography or any really fancy ways to get data out because you're talking about 10 gigs, right? It's, yeah. it's a very, very large volume and it limits the things that the, the attacker can actually do to get that into uh, a different form that they can use for an extortion scenario. I'm just kind of reminded of the hacking team uh, incident where the attacker wound up releasing a video where they were exfilling off this guy's box at like five meg per second while he was watching wine videos on YouTube and just didn't notice, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and if you are patient, you can absolutely play that card, but most of these guys are not patient. Yeah, and it's it's it, it is interesting because it's it's all user mode stuff. We're not talking about the process tree. We're not talking about logs and correlation. It's just really, really obvious installation and use of certain types of software and communication with file sharing sites that does not make any sense based on a normal pattern of user behavior. Yeah, but I mean, that's, you know, that's highly subjective, right? Like, you know, quite often if you're trying to set up Xfil just solely based on data volumes moving around, you're going to get tripped up a lot by, by false positives. So how do you actually tune that so that it's a quality signal? One of the, the simplest ways to do that is show me every endpoint that has installed a new archiving tool and also has sent out an anomalous volume of data. You know, you're yeah. probably getting that one midstream, uh, which is not ideal. But those are really, really strong signals. That should not be happening all that often in your environment. But to your point, it does happen. And when you have more than one thing pointing in that direction, that's very good. And if you really want to take it even farther, if you have you know, strange login activity or all of the classic things that you look at for a potentially compromised account, all of those things become really, really useful signals to lower the false positive rate, which... In DLP land, you know, we're doing well when we're not at a 20% false positive rate. These detectors, at least in our experience, are less than 1% false positives, which is yeah. really, really good. So you're saying DLP is the best way to uh, instrument this? Well, it's kind of the only one, right? There's not too much focus that has been assume breach attacker has access to a bunch of data and either they're accessing it in an anomalous way, staging it, is maybe what I would describe the kind of second phase of that as, or, or exfilling it, right? And they don't have that many choices when it comes to that. Uh, some, some custom tooling is definitely out there, but more often, you know, to your WinRAR story or my 7-Zip story, they're using something that they like, and most of the time, you're not going to see a legitimate user do that. Yeah, so uh, just to recap the WinRAR story, I know I've told it a million times, but a few people might have missed it, which is an APT crew got snapped on a fairly important network here in Australia because they tried to install WinRAR. Uh, it's a very <laughs> funny airlock digital war story, but uh, anyway. But I mean, look, let's just ask that question. Why are these attackers, why, oh why, are they bringing their own archivers when most operating systems have them built in already? Is it because they want to do multi-part archives or like what's... Multi-part what, is, yeah, yeah multi-part seems to be the main motivation there. Well, I can imagine because if, if you break it up, right, and you, you have one part that fails, you just resubmit that part. But, you know, you, if you're trying to upload a two gig zip and the upload fails, you know, you got, that's a, that's a headache. I guess that's why, right? That, that's, that's exactly it. And it's one of the really interesting things to distinguish an attacker from a malicious insider. 
<laughs> yeah, because malicious, ins- do malicious insiders don't don't know that that's the better way to do it, right? <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly, and that helps actually route the investigation properly. You know, whether you you need to talk to HR and legal, or whether you know it's <laughs> up the chain in in the SOC or the IR team. Yeah, yeah. So, what are some other uh, uh, missed detection opportunities, Mister Calumber? Uh, my favorite one at the moment, and the highest fidelity one we have for post-compromise, you know, BEC style activity, business email compromise for those who are new here, is actually inbox rule creation. (laughs) We've been talking about this for years and years and years, but I see too many environments where they're not looking for it. And one of the reasons that very often you're not looking for it is it's actually not in the graph API in Microsoft 365. What? It's an audit log. It's really irritating. But you know, if you if you have someone <laughs> doing any form of cloud threat protection for you, you should be looking for that because inbox rules around Workday are going to be absolutely 100%. <laughs> Unless the person's in HR, I can imagine a really, really long tail false positive scenario. But that's what payroll diversion. You'll see the workday.com rule set up so that you know it, the notification that you changed your bank account details for the next pay period goes somewhere else. Uh, and of course, there's the, the traditional set that uh, we always see for the classic kind of vendor email compromise scenarios where they're you know, looking for entire domains or other uh, parts of the uh, kind of the B2B financial transaction landscape that they can exploit. And inbox rule creation is just a really, really core part of that playbook that almost always occurs. And it's relatively rare for end users to do these days. So if you have any signals that you can correlate with inbox rule creation, you know, that's going to be one of the best possible highest fidelity things to look at in a cloud environment and actually get uh, some in-flight really, really problematic compromises. So how are people normally uh, ingesting their audit logs from 0365? It's a good question. Uh, Sentinel does a really nice job of it if that's what you have. Obviously, you can pipe it over to a SIEM uh, lots of different ways. And then if you have a CASB or cloud threat type tool, they should be doing this as well. I mean, Uh, I'm just thinking like off the top of my head that a really simple rule there might be any uh, inbox rule, uh, inbox, you know, rule change that involves the name of that organization's bank is probably something you should put a giant flashing red light on, right? Totally, totally. Your payroll provider, your bank, and many of your suppliers, right? All of those things, especially if you know who your suppliers are, which is a bonus. Uh, not all organizations do. Those are all really, really good things to look for. But even in a large organization, the volume of inbox rules that get set up by legitimate users is not that high. So this is a... Well, I, that was actually going to be one of my questions, which is what is the you know, legitimate use case in an enterprise that's indispensable for, inbox, you know, for mailbox rules, right? Because like, that's, that's a hard one to really... I mean, off the top of my head, but, you know, this is me working from a home office, right? So I don't know. I'm not an enterprise guy, but, you know, you tell me. Uh, I mean, one of the classic ones, I mean, many of our listeners probably get too many unsolicited emails from vendors, right? So yeah. if you want to make those stop, you can write rules. There's lots of ways to to do that. And that's what we, we see, kind of failures of spam or untrusted email leads to users creating very manual workarounds for that. That's... That's a legitimate use case. It's it's a bit of a blunt instrument, but it does exist. And there are users that love inbox rules and have a lot of them, but your average user never creates a single one. And yeah. that's why it's such a great detection signal. And also because, you know, it, because if you think about BEC behavior, they can't get away from the inbox, right? It is where they live, where they breathe, and uh, where they need to hide their activity. And there's not another simple, good way to do that. So you're saying vendor sales, security vendor sales are the uh, root of this problem. (laughs) They're not helping. (laughs) Not helping. Root, root, maybe not. They're a branch, but yeah, definitely not the root. All right. So that's that's two, you know, decent, uh, decent detections there. You got a third one for us. Uh, I got a third one coming from the interview that you did with Brett Winterford, right? Which was an excellent one. We are seeing a lot more of the... uh, call it adversary in the middle phishing, uh, MFA collection is what we call it as a threat technique. Um, that is becoming something that everybody needs to worry about. And at this point, there are really, really good detections on, you know, so the this is, I, I should just point it out. Mm-hmm. This is the like person in the middle phishing kits that do the one-time password pass through all seamlessly and then capture the user, yes. uh, you know, the user's auth, you know, session cookie basically and passes that back off to the attacker. 
Right. Uh, and works for push notifications as well. And yeah. critically, in most cases, they'll also pass the real session cookie to the user. So the user logs in as normal, does not perceive that there's any kind of problem. But of course, the attacker has that session cookie as well. The best rule that we've seen for that, uh, this is something we do on the cloud side, is uh, same cookie, multiple devices, and neither of those devices is a mobile device. So you run into some interesting false positive scenarios if you try and just look for the same session happening multiple different places. But when it comes to what you're going to see with that cookie showing up in a place it's not supposed to and generating basically the same session, that's going to be a really high fidelity detection. Because again, most of the time the user is not going to say, oh, I clicked on something. It wasn't, it wasn't behaving as I expected. It threw a weird error message because it's not going to do that. It's mm -hmm. going to actually pass the, the cookie to the user and keep a copy of it for the attacker, of course. So when you see a new device pop up that what is another laptop sort of thing? Is another laptop, and you know, obviously there are many of these sort of you know, uh, fish kits as a service that are pretty good at cloning the user agent and fooling a lot of the browser-based detections. But you're still another device, yeah. And that is interesting to see. Uh, that does show up in Graph API for the M365 shops, and everybody should at least be looking at that as part of a playbook because even if you don't alert off it 100% of the time, it's great context to other things, including the mailbox rule, <laughs> including actually the compromised device that is doing weird things with high volumes of data. So <laughs> with this threat landscape where you have obviously insider stealing data, ransomware crews pivoting to data extortion and BEC guys, you, know, you might not be able to stop the initial compromise, but there are all kinds of really interesting ways to look for post-compromise activity that not everybody's doing. All right, well, Ryan Calumber, thank you very much for joining us with three really genuinely, actually quite interesting uh, detection ideas. Uh, always a pleasure to chat to you. Likewise, Pat. That was Ryan Calumber from Proofpoint there. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Proofpoint for being a Risky Business sponsor. And that's it for this week's show. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Seriously Risky Business with Tom Uren in our Risky Business News RSS feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.